Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And it's been a wild week here in Virtual Legality, to be frank, and it continued today. As what did I wake up to? But a hundred messages telling me that Elon Musk had made his move. Obviously, on your screen right now is the logo to the social media networking platform, Twitter. And as we've talked about for a number of videos now, Elon Musk has been making moves towards Twitter, including purchasing up to a little under 10% of the company in secret before announcing it to the world earlier this month. And then this morning at 7.23 a.m., he simply tweeted, I made an offer. Based on this and based on what we're going to talk about in today's video, I have started on Elon Musk playlist, where you can see my prior two videos that started out this discussion. And while I said in those videos, especially the first one, that the journalists covering this story were jumping the gun as to when Elon Musk might make a move against Twitter, whatever the case was last week, that has changed as of today. So this playlist will likely be ongoing especially if this becomes a hostile takeover bid, which it might, and we'll discuss that in this video. Along those lines, let's start out with some history. I'm going to talk to you about a statute that you may or may not have heard of. It's called the Williams Act, and I'm going to use a Corporate Finance Institute summary of this. This is obviously a secondary source, not the statute itself. We'll look at that a little bit. But it's important to understand the context of what we're looking at from Elon Musk, which in all honesty is a bit of a rarity, an unsolicited bid from a single individual towards a company of the size and stature of a Twitter is not the normal chain of events uh, here in the United States or globally. So this one might become a very, very long story indeed. So the Williams Act is enacted in 1968 as summarized here in response to a series of hostile takeovers by large companies which posed a risk to shareholders and company executives. So so let's stop for just a minute. It's important to understand what a hostile takeover is. A board very often doesn't love a takeover bid in any instance. It often means that the board is going to get fired, the officers are going to get fired, management is going to get changed, all sorts of things are going to happen. But that doesn't make it alone hostile. What makes it hostile is if the board decides that whatever the bid is, isn't in the best interest of the shareholders or the company. I'm going to be talking about this at more length as this video goes on. But what's important to note is in the normal course of business, a bidder comes in, says, we're going to buy your shares, convinces the board that that's a good idea. The board adopts a merger agreement, a purchase agreement, whatever it looks like for that particular form of transaction. And then the board says, shareholders, you should approve this. We believe it's in your best interest. That is, in fact, exactly what we have seen with Microsoft's bid of Activision. Talks between Phil and Satya and Bobby Kotick, ultimately arriving at the $95 share price that the board feels is fair. And then the board approves that merger agreement and says, shareholders, vote this up. And they're having that vote at the end of this month. A hostile takeover says, hey, I'd like to do that same thing. Here's my price. The board says no, and then you make it anyway. Because a tender offer is effectively just you holding up a big sign that says, I'm willing to buy your shares at this price. And if I can get all of the company, or more specifically here, if I can get 85% of the company, we'll talk about that as well. 
that I'm in like Flynn and we can move on with taking over whatever company I'm interested in purchasing. Now, ordinarily, people can't wield $40 billion on their own, but here we are. So that's a hostile takeover. Board says no, and you decide to do it anyway. Now, we don't know whether Elon Musk would engage in a hostile takeover if the board declined the request that he posed today, but it is a possibility. So that's why we're going to discuss the Williams Act and how it actually interacts with Delaware law. Because as we've talked about in earlier videos, Twitter is a Delaware domiciled corporation, meaning they are formed under the Delaware General Corporation Law, the statute that governs corporations coming out of that state. And that really is the case with most public companies in the United States. A bit of an accident of history. That was just the state in which investors became most familiar first. And so more and more companies went to Delaware and then it kind of snowballed and Delaware became the state where you incorporated if you wanted those institutional investments. Now, how the Williams Act works, when a company is looking to acquire another company, and for this purpose, we're just going to assume Elon Musk is his own company. He actually probably would use a company to do this. He wouldn't do it individually. Uh, But when a company is looking to acquire another company, it may make a tender offer to the target company's stockholders. So you don't have to say, hey, board, you have to agree to this merger. You have to agree to this asset purchase. You can just hold up that billboard and say, I'm making an offer for your stock at a price that is well above what you can find it on the stock exchange. Sell it to me. And that would be great. When an acquiring company makes an offer, it is required to provide information about the tender offer to the shareholders of the target company and to financial regulators. In fact, that's what we're going to be working with today. The Williams Act requires the companies making a tender offer that is 15 to 20% above the current market price disclose details of the offer to the Securities and Exchange Commission. The requirements also apply to individuals or institutions that acquire more than 5% of the target company's outstanding shares. The acquirer must file the disclosures with all national security exchanges where the securities are traded. Making the information public helps shareholders and investors of the target company know what to expect when the acquisition is initiated. The importance of the act, the requirement to make full and fair disclosures of an intended acquisition aims to strike a balance between the interests of the shareholders of the target company and the managers of the acquiring company. Now, this article doesn't go into the history so much here, but during certain periods of American history, the 60s, the 80s especially, which is where we will actually see uh, a lot of the protections come in that we're going to discuss today, these particular buyers were using strategic gamesmanship to get shares in their doors. They were using two-tier offers. They were using uh, heavy pressure on timelines that you had an offer only open for a certain amount of time, and then it would immediately decline. All sorts of things that when you can't see that that's the exact strategy that they're doing becomes very, very problematic from the shareholder side of things. So the bulk of the Williams Act is effectively just based around transparency. You're going to disclose these things. You're going to tell people there's a two-tier offer, and then maybe that won't look right to the various shareholders that might otherwise uh, sell their shares to you, et cetera, et cetera. Also, it allows the acquirer's managers to have an opportunity to win the shareholders of the target company publicly. Since the documents are available for the public to evaluate, the managers will try to present the best offer possible so that the shareholders and investors will accept. And we will see that from Mr. Musk's offer, right? It has to go public. It has to be disclosed when it happens. And so he says, it's going to be a big number. I'm not going to fight about this. I'm not going to try to nickel and dime. And I'm not going to negotiate this number. And he's going to make that public as well with maybe a little bit of threatening language, but that is pretty natural in a circumstance like this. Now, this is an old act. It really isn't up to date for the modern digital age. And that presents its own problems. But overall, it requires transparency. And it's exactly the kind of transparency that we have seen Elon Musk dealing with throughout this process, right? 
if you require more than 5% of certain classes or securities, you have to file with the commission a statement that you did so, especially if the purpose was to acquire control of the business of the issuer. And most importantly for what we're going to be discussing today, if any material change occurs in the facts set forth in the statements that you do have filed, then you have to update those reasonably as quickly as possible. And we see that also covered in the regulations that we've discussed when we've been looking at these filings by Elon Musk. This is now his third substantive filing. He initially filed saying, I have no interest in control. Then he filed to say, hey, by the way, they offered me a board seat, but I declined. And today he's filing, eh, you know what? Actually, I am interested in control. Let's buy the company. And this says, hey, within 10 days, if this changes and you're now interested in acquiring control, you file it. And this looks to have happened about a day after he put forth the offer letter to Twitter itself, which leads us now with that background and information that he has these transparency requirements to what he actually filed today. And unfortunately, my highlights aren't holding on this page. That sometimes happens with SEC and and Edgar-based documentation. So bear with me as we read through this together. On April 13th, 2022, the reporting person, and every time I say that, that is Elon Musk, and April 13th is yesterday as of the recording of this video, delivered a letter to the issuer, and the issuer is Twitter, which contained a non-binding proposal to acquire all of the outstanding common stock of the issuer not owned by the reporting person for all cash consideration, valuing the common stock at $54.20 per share. Note the 420 here from Mr. Musk seems to be one of his modus operandi. This represents a 54% premium over the closing price of the common stock on January 28th, 2022, the trading day before the reporting person began investing in the issuer, and that's its own deal, uh, as we will also talk about because Elon Musk is having some trouble over whether or not he properly disclosed even that 5% uh, acquisition, and a 38% premium over the closing price of the common stock on April 1st, 2022, the trading day before the reporting person's investment in the issuer was publicly announced. So he's telling the SEC this. He will also mention this in the letter that we will read in just a moment. But what's important here is that if you're going to win a tender offer, you have to come over the top, right? You have to offer something that the average owner of a share of this company couldn't otherwise realize on the market, because if they could, then they can just sell into the market, just like you, Mr. Musk, bought from the market. So when you're talking about a tender offer, when you're talking about a bid, just like we saw with Activision and Microsoft, you're going to offer something that is some significant percentage above the market price. Uh, as a premium. Now, it's also worth noting, just like in Microsoft versus Activision, that we're going to hear things about the goodness of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And that might be true. I can't speak to Mr. Musk's mind as evidenced by the playlist that I just said, saying, I don't know that any of this means he's going to offer a takeover bid. And here we are as of today. But it's also worth noting that he bought on a pretty significant dip, right? That Twitter had had a tough year Uh, by all looks at what was happening with the stock, that it was down for a good chunk of time when the rest of the tech industry had been up through 2021 pretty significantly. And Twitter basically was pretty average. And then by the time it's announcing things at the tail end of 2021, it's at about a $60 level in and of itself. And it falls off. By the time you're in March of 2021, you've lost about half your value of Twitter. You've lost about three years of growth from the company that really doesn't bounce back until Elon Musk and his buying into the company are revealed. Now, you'll also notice 
that the price from this offer didn't actually bounce that much. Investors are having a tough time figuring out whether this is likely to go through at all. And there's basically a, a fight here between investors buying and selling and various things that says, well, if it goes through, obviously it's worth more money. We just talked about it. It's These shares are actually worth $54, but it's trading at 46. It popped up to 48 when this was first announced. And now it's coming down because I think everybody reasonably believes that the board is going to put up its defenses that they aren't going to just simply allow Elon Musk to take over the company. And if that is in fact the case, we'll also see that Elon Musk has said, I have no faith in the management of the company and I'll probably have to liquidate my shares. So whatever bump you got, not only are you going to lose that, but in all likelihood, if you've got Elon Musk out there and probably more prominently going out there after this falls apart saying, Twitter's management is not to be trusted. They aren't taking it in the right direction. You can't make money there then with such a prominent voice out there, that is, in effect, the threat that Twitter's board is now dealing with this morning, where they are undoubtedly on emergency phone calls and board meetings and the like. But that's just kind of the overall uh, statement here. Let's continue on with what Mr. Musk had to say. Now, he does offer a few structural things. The proposal is non-binding. That's normal. This is effectively a term sheet says, here's what I'm willing to do. Then we can discuss what would be binding. It would require governmental approvals. It would require diligence. It would require negotiation and execution of definitive agreements. That would be the merger agreement in all likelihood. And, and that's the difference in timing that I often talk about here in virtual legality, that once you get something announced, once Microsoft announces that it's purchasing Activision, you've actually already gone through a couple of months of negotiations as to what the merger agreement should look like, whether the diligence checks out, all these other things. And it's only when you actually get signatures on a definitive document that those are generally reported to the public and we can re react to them here in virtual legality. This is different. Elon Musk is actually using the Williams Act and the transparency requirements for the reason that we saw summarized a bit in that article, which is to say, I'm getting out there right now. I'm gonna put the pressure on the Twitter board with a public statement because, hey, I'm just a legally compliant guy. I'm putting this disclosure in, regardless of how you might feel about Elon Musk and the rest of the SEC statements he's made. One thing to note here is as he comments on the 54% premium and the 38% premium, et cetera, is that he's getting sued. And I might cover this in a separate video in this playlist, but he's getting sued essentially by shareholders that liquidated their interest in Twitter, not knowing that Elon Musk was buying into the company throughout January and February and March and said, hey, I wouldn't have done that if I had known that. And so you should have disclosed that because you got a lower price on your stock from people that were liquidating for different reasons than you would have if you had told the world that you invest. And again, we might cover that a little bit further, but even as we mentioned in the prior videos in this series, uh, he has been playing at least a little bit fast and loose, as one can see from the outside, with the timing requirements of when disclosures have to be made, exactly what you have to tell the SEC. You know, it's, it's hard to believe. It strains credibility to think that when he files, I'm not interested in control, and the day later, he's offered a board seat, and then uh, less than a week later, he makes a tender offer bid for the rest of the company. It's some 40-odd billion dollars. Uh, it's hard to believe that he's been uh, on the full up and up with what he's been reporting to the SEC. And yet he reports this early so that he can get out there and say, I made an offer to Twitter. We'll also see how informal the process of him making an offer to Twitter was. Also that he can get this out there 
in an SEC filing. He's a very, very interesting actor uh, on all of these various grounds. Now, he says there can be no assurance that a definitive agreement with respect to the proposal will be executed when the transaction will be consummated. There's no certainty how Twitter will react to all of these things. And all of that is accurate. You then see a paragraph that says, if I buy this company, I'm pulling it down from being a public company. I will delist this stock. I don't want it to be a public company. And the question will become is whether Elon Musk wants to be the sole owner of Twitter or whether he intends to have some kind of investment syndicate. Uh, And I'll be looking forward to getting a little bit more information there because some of what he is going to say in this letter that he said to Twitter and that he's really going out there with to the public suggests that he doesn't want to maximize profitability necessarily with the company. And as we talked about in just the last video in this series, in general, for a Delaware corporation, a board of directors, controlling stockholder, officers of a company have a fiduciary duty to the other investors in that company. And that doesn't depend on that stock being available on a public exchange. You owe that fiduciary duty to your other investors, regardless of whether or not you are quote unquote private or public. Now, if you are the sole owner of the company, obviously you can't breach a fiduciary obligation to yourself. So you can basically use the company as you see fit, but it's a little bit unclear that we're going to arrive at that level. Then we get paragraphs that we saw in his most recent amendment to this form, which says, hey, I can do what I like. I might buy some more stuff. I can talk to the board. I can use social media. And by the way, I can change my decisions at any time. The reporting person reserves the right to change his plans at any time as he deems appropriate. And then he files two interesting exhibits, which he knew would be picked up by places like virtual legality and and more importantly, realistically, national and international journalistic outlets. The first exhibit A, we're not going to cover. That was the letter agreement offering him the position on the board. It is very, very simple. And it does exactly what it said on the tin when we went over his initial disclosure. Exhibit B, however, is significantly more interesting. So this is the letter in which he offers to buy Twitter. He says, Brett Taylor, chairman of the board, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for functioning democracy. Now, here's what I mean when I say he better be planning to buy this solo or contractually commit to his investors that he's going to do whatever he wants with the company. Because this sentence here, if you believe it, means that I'm not necessarily going to try to maximize profitability with the platform after I bought it, which is totally fine. If you're the sole owner, you can do with companies what you will. But if you have other investors that think that you are their fiduciary to make money, the societal imperative for the company really shouldn't be coming into the question so much as do the consumers of this product believe that that societal imperative is important enough for them to leave if we don't follow it, that kind of thing, right? Free speech is used by Twitter and Facebook and Google and whatnot as a certain bit of marketing because they think their users care about that. And this could just be puffery of the same regard. But right now, just in this sentence, if you are going to say Twitter shouldn't have X censorship or B or whatever it is because of the First Amendment concepts or governmental free speech concepts and consumers don't like that and you don't care, then you aren't actually acting as a fiduciary for the company if you were to purchase it. But that's a long way down the road. If we get closer to that point in time, we'll discuss that more fulsomely. Continuing with his letter, however, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. So you won't make money as I currently understand your management board and plans. 
nor will you actually fulfill this free speech societal imperative that I just mentioned. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. So that actually says more about his thoughts on private versus public companies in general than just Twitter. That effectively a public company, says he, is incapable of performing that societal function, probably due to the fiduciary obligations you'd have to a multitude of shareholders. Uh, and then you could otherwise control a company if it was sole owned or if you had a contractual waiver acknowledgement from your other investors that you were going to do this with the form. So he thinks, hey, I can spend 40 some odd billion dollars and we can make Twitter what it should be and I'm just the man to do it. As a result, I'm offering to buy 100% of Twitter for $54.20, a 54% premium over the day before I began investing and a 38% premium over the day before my investment was publicly announced. My offer is my best and final offer. We just talked about that. And if it is not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. Twitter has extraordinary potential. I will unlock it. Say what you will about Elon Musk. He is certainly very self-confident in what he brings to the table. I will unlock it. Now, if that letter were it, that would be interesting enough. But he actually included the notes through which he would present this offer to Twitter itself. And you got to love exactly how big deals happen, certainly under Elon Musk, but all around the world today. Script sent via text. Imagine you are a chairperson on the Twitter board or whoever this was sent to, and your phone just starts beeping with this. As I indicated this weekend, I believe that the company should be private to go through the changes that need to be made. So this is very interesting. So this is a text message sent, but a couple of things pop out here. First, that this was the talk he had when he rejected the board seat. This was the conversation he had with Twitter. And if we actually go back to uh, Pereg Agrawal's uh, tweet here about what happened when Elon decided not to take on the board seat, you go to the bottom here, he actually says there will be distractions ahead, but our goals and priorities remain unchanged. And certainly I looked at that statement uh, on my previous video and I said, well, that's noteworthy. But I had assumed he meant that Elon wanted to be more loud and wanted to create distractions for the company because he didn't believe in certain aspects of the way the company was being run. And he certainly doesn't, as we will see. But instead, this really sounds like, hey, we know or we strongly suspect He's going to make a bid this week. So get ready, buckle up. And so you actually have Twitter CEO giving that warning in the initial tweet when Elon decided not to take that seat on the board. After the past several days of thinking this over, I've decided I want to acquire the company and take it private. It's just a text message. You just get that on your phone. You're sweating bullets at this point in time if you work for Twitter. I am going to send you an offer later tonight. It will be public in the morning. Are you available to chat? So presumably this was last night that he sent this. Then you get the voice script. And this is essentially just the outline of the things you want to say, the talking points that you intend to say if you're Elon Musk. It's my best and final offer. I'm not playing a back and forth game. We're not negotiating this number. I move straight to the end. It's a high price and your shareholders will love it. Also, by the way, impliedly, it's going public. They're going to see it. And if the deal doesn't work, given, and this is important, that I don't have confidence in management, nor do I believe I can drive the necessary change in the public market, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. And further, probably from a little advice from the lawyers, this is not a threat. I'm not threatening you. I'm not trying to leverage or extort you into giving me your company. It's simply not a good investment without the changes that need to be made, according to him, obviously. 
And those changes won't happen without taking the company private because presumably fiduciary responsibility to public shareholders on a large scale is preventing Twitter from being whatever Elon Musk thinks it needs to be. But it functions as a threat, right? It's not maybe a legal threat because he's got good reasons for it. It's not trying to extort the deal. He's just saying, hey, look, I don't trust y'all to run Twitter. So if you're going to stay in the driver's seat, there's no reason for me to have a 9% position. That's totally fine. That's a reasoned position to take. That's why he frames it this way. That's why there are these Romanets under subsection D here to remind him to say these things when he makes this statement. But it is undoubtedly a threat to the board of directors and management of Twitter. Because as I said, you get Elon Musk in, you get that bump. He looks around, sees things and says, nah, that's not for me. This isn't the way Twitter is actually going to quote unquote thrive, let alone perform a free speech function and then leaves. That's very likely to have a substantial negative effect on other investors uh, that look at Twitter and potentially really, really do damage to their stock. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to happen. That's obviously forward-looking, speculative on what that would look like. Certainly, he makes this statement with the knowledge that that is a likely outcome and that Twitter will read it the same way. If I have this conversation, hey, if I just publicly stated in a document that Hogue can read and that everybody else can read, I don't have confidence in management and so I liquidated my position Other people are going to read that that already have a position in Twitter and reconsider whether that's a good or bad idea for them. And heck, if this is the sequence of events that Elon Musk actually foments and then decides to create his own platform, he's got the background here now set up to say, this is why I liquidated my position in Twitter. They are not the ones to take this platform to where it needs to be, whatever that is uh, in Elon Musk's mind. My advisors and my team are available after you get this letter to answer any questions, talk to my lawyers, talk to financial, et cetera, et cetera. There will be more detail in our public filings, uh, barely. After you receive the letter and review these public filings, your team can call my family office with any questions. So all of this went public. Obviously, we're talking about it here. And that puts the screws to Twitter pretty good. As we see, just to button this up, Twitter has acknowledged that it did in fact receive that letter. It wasn't just a fake SEC filing and they are very short and terse with it. Twitter today confirmed it has received an unsolicited non-binding proposal from Elon Musk to acquire all of the company's outstanding common stock for $54.20 per share in cash. Now that unsolicited is important. They put that in the headline. They put that in their opening paragraph. That is the marker for potentially going hostile, right? We didn't solicit this. We didn't have conversations with him. It came out of the blue. And that means that the board can take a somewhat more defensive stance. We're not looking to sell the company right now. The board can say, hey, we think we're growing the company in a good direction, which for the second part of this video, I'm going to use as a jumping off point, a tweet I received from Daniel Sampaio. And I apologize if I don't get that pronunciation right. At Dan XL on Twitter, where else? who says to me, I read somewhere that the Twitter CEO slash board pretty much has to accept because they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. Can you talk about this on the show? And here we are. So let's talk about it. So first, in answer to the question, no, the board does not have to accept. And this becomes a little bit tricky to discuss. And I think it's where people take fiduciary duty as a concept a little bit too far. So as I've said in this video, A board of directors, officers, controlling stockholders, whoever it might be that can actually control how a company operates, has a fiduciary obligation. They have an obligation to serve as effectively trustees for the money that other people gave them. However, you can believe in yourself more than you believe in Elon Musk. 
right? It might seem obvious to say, well, look, if it's trading at 48 now, or it was trading at 33 in March, and they're offering 54.20 right now, then it should be, okay, the board just has to accept. But there's a number of things the board can do. One, let's say it took a big amount of financing, right? We see that in the letter, and I actually forgot to cover this when we just talked about it. He actually references financing as part of what this will be subject to uh, above, completion of anticipated financing, which is the kind of thing that a board can react to. If Elon Musk were just, oh, let's say they they were me and said, hey, I'd like to offer you $41 billion for your company. It is going to take a little bit of financing though. One thing the board could do is say, um, effectively, we don't believe Hogue. We, we don't believe that Hogue can go and find $41 billion in financing to buy our company. And so we're going to reject it because it's going to take time and resources uh, and all these various things. It's going to distract us from the day-to-day operations of the company. It's going to hold back our earnings. And realistically, there's a 0.001% chance that Hogue is ever going to get $41 billion together. Elon Musk changes that equation, right? He's going to look for potential financing because that'll be useful to him if you can leverage your numbers correctly and you have your financial advisors giving you these kinds of tips. All good for you. But overall, he could liquidate Tesla stock. He could get $41 billions together if he really, really wanted it. So the board does have that ability to look at these questions and say, well, we don't believe the deal. We think it would be bad. And they can also say, look, your deal right now is offered at 54.20, but we think we're moving in the right direction. We think we're going to get that in the open market in the next little bit of time. We think this board has the right plan. We think we as officers have the right plan. And effectively, he is trying to vulture your shares because of the dip right? We had a dip. We've changed management. We're going in a different direction now than we used to be going. This is an unsolicited bid. He's a wild card actor and 5420 isn't the true value of your stock in a very short time. So we believe that it's in the best interest of the company. And more importantly, you, the shareholder that you stick around, that we don't hand over the reins because 5420 today could be a hundred tomorrow. And we can justify why we make that position. That can still be within the fiduciary ambit to reject this deal. Even if he had the cash and he had a stack of it and he just put it on the desk and said it's 5420 right now, the board can still say, we think it's not in the best interest of the shareholders, which at that point in time, if they were to do that, Elon Musk can say, fine, we're not going to go through a friendly offer. We're going to take this hostile and I'm going to bid for the shares without your approval board. At which point, when I get to a certain number, then I can change the board, I could take over the company, whatever that looks like. And that leads us back to the Williams Act, which of course is what we started with. And more importantly, versions of takeover protection that each of the states wound up putting in their own general corporation law to protect against tender offers that go hostile. So Delaware has a provision called Section 203, called Business Combinations with Interested Stockholders. And it goes a little bit like this. Notwithstanding any other provisions of this chapter, which is just generally about uh, business combinations and, and business running, a corporation shall not engage in any business combination with an interested stockholder for a period of three years following the time that such stockholder became an interested stockholder. Unless, and then we'll talk about exceptions in just a second, but that interested stockholder definition you might already anticipate is that 15% number that we have seen so often. You might have been wondering why, for instance, Elon Musk had agreed for a moment in time, at least, to take a board seat in exchange for not going above 14.9%, I believe it was, uh, of the company's outstanding shares. That is because he wouldn't be an interested stockholder 
at that number, which allows him to do certain things and prevent certain disclosures. And I'm not going to go too far into the details there. But suffice to say, once you become an interested stockholder, you have a three-year cooling off period under Delaware law to, among other things, allow the company to put up defenses against you. Now, there are exceptions to that. And one of the big ones is upon consummation of the transaction, which results in you becoming an interested stockholder, the, the transaction that takes you from less than 15 to over 15, you also wind up owning at least 85% of the voting stock. Remember, I used that number 85% before. So you can pop out of this restriction if you just have a tender offer that goes flying past 85%, that this doesn't block you from that. But it does block you from not getting to that level. So you really need a lot of uptake on your tender offer. You can't piecemeal it. You can't do things like try to take over the board slowly in Delaware. And this is designed much like that Williams Act concept to give the the board, the company protection against corporate raiders, against people that will vulture things uh, and to have that cooling off period in most circumstances. Now, note it doesn't count director's ownership, officer ownership, employee ownership. And you can actually approve this after the fact if you get approval from 66 and two thirds percent of the voting stock and the board. But at that point in time, you're not really engaged in a hostile takeover of much of any kind. So Delaware goes out there and says, if you want to take over a company, you basically have to do it in one fell swoop, big time, uh, or you can't do it at all. If you cross that 15% threshold, you got to wait because the company maybe wasn't expecting a hostile bid or a bid of any kind. uh, And that's what this is designed to do. Now, it's also worth noting that some folks have come out and said, well, this is too harsh and this puts too much power in entrenched management, in the entrenched board, and takes that away, potential value from the other stockholders. Now, this is an article from, I believe, 2010. So it's a little bit out of date for current understanding. This is actually a defense of 203. But one of the things that this covers is that a report studying the 20 years from 88 to 2008 found that only six hostile bidders went from less than 15% ownership in the target to more than 85% in a single tender offer as required for the exemption that we were just discussing. So 90% of potential hostile bids that they studied were essentially turned away. Now, this article goes on to say, well, that doesn't mean that 203 is illegal because one of the concepts that you could have is you could say 203 is actually a violation of the federal law, the Williams Act, because it isn't putting them on an equal footing if 90% are killed. This particular article says, certainly Section 203 furthers the federal policy of investor protection. It was enacted to shield shareholders from the coerciveness of front-end loaded two-tier offers by preventing the offer or from affecting the second step of the offer unless the target's board of directors, and in some instances, the target shareholders, approve the transaction. So 203 comes in very similar to the Williams Act and says, hey, if you put a very short deadline, high offer, followed by a potentially longer deadline, low offer, to encourage everybody to jump in as fast as they can, and you're using essentially psychology and gamesmanship to do things that aren't necessarily in the company or the shareholder's best interest, then 203 is going to stop you from doing that, right? You have to do it in one fell swoop, one price, best offer, similar to the Williams Act. They say, hey, look, the Williams Act says it, the statute can have substantial deterrent effects on tender offers so long as hostile offers, which are beneficial to target shareholders, have a meaningful opportunity for success. So if it's killing 90%, maybe that's okay. Further, it says, and this is really the important part why I wanted to use this as the transition to really the last thing I want to discuss with you on this video, is that there's an assumption in this particular analysis that the poison pill, which may or may not be a term that you've heard, was the binding constraint on a bitter strategy in the past 20 years, and it isn't actually Section 203. So 
right? We got a question. Can the board reject it? The answer is yes. The board can reject it. They can stop it up. You've got Delaware law that says this can be a tricky thing and you really have to go over the top. And further, the board can take more active steps, something called a poison pill or a shareholder rights plan. Here, we're going to look at an Investopedia summary. Again, these aren't as great as a real fulsome summary you might see in a law review article or something like that. But I think it gets across the point of what this thing is. And you can see how a board could use it to defend itself. It says, faced with the prospect of a hostile takeover by another company or an investor group, a corporate board might adopt a defensive strategy called a shareholder rights plan. Such plans discourage the unwelcome accumulation of company stock above a set threshold by promising to dilute an activist buyer's stake with discounted share sales to the other shareholders. It's a contract that you enter into that says everybody else gets a discount if one person goes over these set milestones of ownership in the company. An example of a poison pill defense occurred in 2012 when the board of Netflix adopted a shareholder's rights plan days after Carl Icahn acquired a 10% stake in the company. The poison pill stipulated that in the event of a new acquisition of 10% or more, any Netflix merger or Netflix sales or transfers of more than 50% of its assets, other shareholders would then be able to purchase two shares for the price of one, making it extraordinarily expensive to actually go and acquire a 100% stake in Netflix. And these are allowed basically because the board can find that an activist investor isn't going to maximize the assets or operating level of the company, even though a certain amount of those investors might well like to get 54.20 for their Twitter shares right now. That says there's a couple of advantages. Obviously, if you think an activist investor is taking advantage of a dip in the stock price, if you think that the board is on the right pace, uh, then using something like this helps to defend the ongoing operations of the company, right? As this summary says, a poison pill defense could help a company whose share price has suffered a short-term decline, resist a vulture bid from a potential acquirer seeking to take advantage of a temporary discount, market declines at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic led hundreds of US companies to adopt shareholders' rights plans for that reason. However, if you're looking at this and saying, hey, I'm an Elon Musk fan, and I think he should be allowed to buy Twitter, and they adopt a plan like this that just says, hey, if Elon Musk buys another couple percent for every couple percent, we're going to just start handing out shares to investors to make his uh, interest in the company become diluted, then that's not fair. That is, in fact, one of the things that is a disadvantage to a shareholder's rights plan. First of all, adopting one tends to lower the stock price because people realize that there isn't a great buyout opportunity, or at least that the defenses make it more expensive for a potential acquirer to come in, which lowers the market value of the stock naturally. It also, as I've highlighted here, shields entrenched and underperforming company managers from shareholder efforts to replace them, right? Because this is one of the ways that you go after a company. We already talked about the fact that Elon Musk was offered a classified level two board seat, which means they have a classified board, which makes a proxy fight to take over a board, a very long and involved process in and of itself. If they have a shareholder's rights plan on top of that, that can entrench what may well be, depending on your interpretation of what has happened uh, since Agrawal has taken over, a underperforming bit of management that is doing the wrong things. And Look, I've done a lot of videos here in virtual legality that have talked about the problems that I have with the way that Twitter enforces its rules, the things that Twitter has done, the way a lot of companies have done. It's not unique to Twitter. And so I am somewhat sympathetic to something needs to change. Is that Elon Musk? Is he legitimate when he says, I want it to be a beacon for democracy and free speech? Or is he a vulture bidder 
buying something on the low because you think it's a valuable asset that is being misused. I can't tell you the answer to that. What I can tell you is that the board can absolutely decline a bid like this. If they do, then it's on Elon Musk for whether he wants to drop out and just leave Twitter entirely or whether he wants to try to go over the top with his bid and tender without the board's approval. Certainly, if he does the latter, this well might become one of the biggest fights we have seen in a long, long time, the kind that Hulu documentaries and HBO movies are made out of. If he doesn't, then Twitter might well have a devastating stock effect as Elon Musk removes his interest, all the while shouting that he has no faith in where Twitter's going or who is taking it there. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy these conversations about technology, takeovers, software, social media, and more, please consider supporting the channel. We are supported at Utreon, uh, where we get a little bit better percentage than we get at Patreon. But if you're more comfortable with the Patreon platform, we have tiers there. Either way is great with us. Please do consider it. Otherwise, if you just want to subscribe, ring the bell, upvote, downvote, engage, leave content. What do you feel about Elon Musk. Tell YouTube you're watching these videos. How do you feel about whether or not there'll be a hostile takeover or not? Either way, all of that engagement is helpful. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.